This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. At some point far in the future, historians will probably ask, what was daily life like in the early 21st century? Well, one thing we know for sure, nobody will ever point to these two clowns and say, This was how you should have been stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and do you like good help in your corner? Whether you're hiring a podcast announcer or financial advisor, having the best person for the job is essential. Today, we'll share our best tips for hiring the best financial help from a team of pros. First, from Sensible Money, please welcome CFP Dana Onspach. Next, say hello to the retirement answer man himself, Roger Whitney. And last but not least, okay, maybe least, from this very podcast, it's OG. But wait, there's more. 78% of American workers live paycheck to paycheck. So during our Friday FinTech segment, we'll welcome Travis Holloway from Solo Funds, a company creating a spot for people to borrow or lend microloans. We'll also magnify a lucky listener's money and, of course, I'll share some trivia about the happiest place on earth. No, not the basement. And now, a guy who depends on me for basically everything. It's Mr. Dependent himself, Joe Saul Sihai. I am Mr. Dependent. I'm dependent on a team of great people like we have here today leading us into Friday. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday. Here back on the Stacking Benjamin Show and his Doug so eloquently said, I am Joe Saul. See, hi, average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me again, it's Mr. OG. What's happening, yo? Well, I'm uh, ready to start celebrating the weekend, so let's get on with this. Please, please, <laughs> we, let's do it. We've got a fantastic team with us. First of all, uh, from Arizona, a woman who we don't have on enough OG, and I feel like it's been too long since she's, way too long since she's been on last time. Dana Ansbach joins us. Hello, Joe, OG. How are you doing today? Well, it's about time you're back to save the show again, Dana. I totally agree. Where have I been? It is about time. So tell everybody what goes on over there in Arizona with Sensible Money. Well, we are a fee-only registered investment advisor firm. Our specialty is working with people in the decumulation phase. Most of our clients are 55 and older, and they've accumulated all of this stuff like we all do, money in different places and different accounts. And we help them figure out how they're going to live on it the rest of their life. 
I felt like I was in the decumulation phase when I was in my 20s. <laughs> well, I know some of us feel like that right now with everything going on. <laughs> that, that is true. And a guy who hopefully is not in the decumulation phase from Fort Worth, Texas, it's our good friend who also hasn't been on in a while, Mr. Roger Whitney. And I am glad that Dana is here because she will have to save the show. With me on it today. <laughs> Absolutely. She is the crutch for you there, Mr. Whitney. <laughs> How you, are Dana. you, my friend? I am doing pretty good. The self-isolation has worked out well because I sort of, that is how I live. <laughs> that's, so, uh, that's your MO? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty what's, much. That, what's that meme from way back? Remember when this coronavirus started? What was that, 15 years ago? Maybe 20 years ago? I can't remember. <laughs> and there was that meme going around saying, I've been planning for this moment my entire life. <laughs> Is that you? I, I think it was about drinking, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm drinking so much during uh, the, the, the lockdown. Thank goodness I'm in such in practice for this moment. Well, it's fantastic having you both here. And we've got a great show today because of the fact that we're talking about hire, how to hire financial planners. And we always hear from journalists about this. We never hear from financial planners on this topic. So this will be fun. What questions people should maybe ask you, what they should ask about fees. Of course, that's all we hear about is fees, 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 fees. I'd love to talk about service, but uh, we've got a great piece on this. So let's get the party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. And our headline today, as I mentioned earlier, comes to us from Investopedia, and it's finding a financial advisor or planner. And if you'd like to follow along, we'll have the link in our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. It's written by Troy Segal. And rather than have a celebrity reader like we do most weeks for this, I just thought that we guys would take this piece by piece and evaluate what Troy says here, see if you agree or disagree. And then also uh, we'll add in as much uh, commentary from your points of view as we possibly can. So Troy says, first of all, getting your financials right. He said, it may have occurred to you just how complex and vital getting it right is when it comes to saving, investing, maximizing the value of your wealth and planning for a safe, comfortable retirement. If so, you've probably asked yourself if you should employ a financial planner or advisor. Similarly, if you felt the pressure of deciding on a big investment such as a home or education or felt overwhelmed with the financial details after a wedding, the birth of a child, divorce, death of a spouse or major illness, you probably wondered about finding someone to advise you. And that's when we get into this idea of advisors and planners. Dana, I'm uh, I'm wondering here, Troy starts off with these big, you know, these big rocks in people's life, having a baby, getting ready for retirement. Are those the time that you find most people reach out to you to try to uh, engage your services? I do find that it's often triggered by some type of life event. You know, for our firm personally, it's people suddenly thinking about retirement, but we've seen people who lost a parent or had a parent go into long-term care or, you know, when I used to work with folks in, in their younger phase, definitely people who are starting a family. So those events trigger you thinking about money and planning for the future and wanting to get it right. Well, let me ask this then though, Dana, as a follow-up, is that the right time? Well, that's a trick question. I mean, I, I think everybody should do it, you know, earlier than that. Of course, I mean, my dad told me from the time I 
graduated college that the first thing I should do is hire a financial planner. And amazingly enough, I listened. And that's how I ended up in this profession and kind of a crazy turn of events. But that's rare, right? How often do we listen to our parents in our 20s? Or how often do we do what we're supposed to do? But really, I mean, there's never a bad time to get good financial advice. Uh, Roger, do you agree? Yeah, I think these things that he talks about are like the triggers to go searching for financial advice. And I agree with Dana's point. The time to do something is when you decide that this is a course of action before you have the trigger. Having someone near you passing away, as an example, usually triggers, hey, I need an estate plan. Or really, you needed it before the trigger. Yeah. But from seeking financial advice, I think it's really important you figure out, well, what the heck are you looking for in the first place? Well, because uh, some people don't need one. Well, and that, that brings something up, Roger. The next thing Troy writes here, he says, according to a 2019 CNBC and Acorns Invest survey, over a third of Americans don't have a good understanding of what a financial advisor actually does. And that figure goes up to 46% for millennials. Do you find, Roger, most people, when they, when they call you, really don't understand exactly what it is you do? Well, uh, yeah, because most financial advisors don't know what they do (laughs) as far as an industry. What what do you mean by that? Well, as far as an industry, it's this mixed, it's the junk drawer of types of advisors. There are advisors that are specialists like Dana and myself in retirement. There are advisors that sell product. There are advisors that work with small business people. They say they work with small business people, but they really work with anybody. And It's just this mishmash of things. So I can understand why consumers don't know what we do. Oh, gee, do you think that the term then financial advisor, assuming you agree with Roger, is it too wide? Should we have, like they're talking about with exchange traded funds right now, right? They're talking about changing the name so that we have different names for different product categories. Should advisors have different names or do they already? And we just don't know it. Well, I suppose, first of all, I have to always agree with Roger just out of a matter of principle. I thought you were going to say it's in the contract uh, of his appearance. Well, I wasn't going to say that, but (laughs) but yeah, you're you're putting too fine a point on it, actually. But I think that the terminology is a part of the problem. I mean, the stuff going on right now, there's just a court case over the new best interest guidelines for the SEC and, and how confusing that is. Consumers don't have any idea who's supposed to be doing what. Most brokers and people who call themselves financial professionals, most of them don't have any idea what they should or shouldn't be doing. And because of this the general term of, quote, financial advisor, everyone can use it. And, and there's no litmus test for whether or not that is a reasonable phrase to use, a reasonable terminology. I mean, imagine if all of a sudden, for no reason, you could just go out and call yourself a doctor. Like how confusing that would be to people who actually need doctors or are looking for doctors or think that they might need a doctor. And so then they call somebody who says that they're a doctor. And then that guy just turns out to be a pharmaceutical sales rep for Pfizer. You know, I mean, you wouldn't even know what to do if you're a consumer. And that's unfortunately a little bit of the state of affairs presently. Where are people, Dana, most surprised when they meet with you about the service that you provide? Something that you do that they had no idea that somebody like a financial planner like you would do? You know, when we take a deep dive and and help people with budgeting, you know, really figuring out where their money's going or with tax planning, 
people are surprised. We'll ask for a copy of last year's tax return and we're looking for mistakes. And sometimes we find them and we just found someone who missed their entire capital loss carry forward from last year. Oh boy. Um, yeah. And they had capital gains and, and it was big tax savings. So they're able to amend their return and get that. And so things, little details like that, you know, so many people think of a financial advisor as only dealing with investments. And there's so much that we do outside of that that adds value that I think people are surprised when they find that out. Most people think that of you too, Roger, that you're just an investment counselor. Well, they're coming, like, like Dana, I, I specialize in that transition into retirement and they come the trigger for them is I'm going to have all this money and I need a paycheck. And and that's the trigger. But yeah, they're surprised all the time that we're, I mean, a lot of times we'll have sprints where, you know, the person, one of the spouses traveled for work and doesn't have any local friends or network. Well, that's a problem when you retire. You'll be their friend? No, I won't. <laughs> well, maybe. I thought, I thought that was another Roger service. <laughs> no. Yeah. Roger for hire, friend. No, but we've had sprints with clients on how to cultivate and build a social network locally if they didn't have one, or we've helped them with cash flow planning. Almost all of it doesn't have to do with what you're investing in. But what do they think when they first reach out to you? Do they think like Dana said that you're just going to handle investments? Yes. Yes. Unless they've listened to my show and they know who I am, they're thinking investment. They want to talk tactics on investments or Roth conversions, not realizing that there's a much more holistic process that leads to a strategy that will get you to the tactics. OG, where are most people surprised when they meet with you? Uh, it usually has to do with the lack of bag on my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> my stunning appearance and just good looks. It's just, just profound blinding i've even heard which i don't know if that's a good phrase or a bad phrase very pale. i'm biting my tongue in so many ways <laughs> i know well we we also have we have that mutual contract remember roger you have to agree with everything i say and i that have to agree with everything that is very you say. correct sir. oh boy no i think everybody else has already kind of hit on all of this stuff I, I i think we all have anecdotal stories of times where clients have done something and you go why why would you do that or why would you not talk to me first about this and and they say, well, I didn't know that you could help me with that. You know, I, I didn't know you could help me with that real estate transaction or this tax problem or, and maybe we can't, but we probably know people who can help. And I think that's probably one of the biggest benefits of hiring professional uh, service folks uh, around you is because they likely know other professional service folks who, if something screws up in your life, if we can't solve the problem, we know people who know how to solve the problem. Um, which I think is also equally important, you know, as it relates to kind of building out your team. Next up, Troy talks about types of financial advice. He says, not all financial advisors are the same. You guys already referenced that. So we're ahead of him. Nice job. Some specialize in certain practice areas, types of clients, income levels, investment strategies, and products. Some work with clients all over the country, while others focus on clients in their town. Some can help you with your taxes, insurance needs, or estate planning, and others will focus on retirement planning. There are advisors for the younger client, and some specialize on retirees. You can find a planner to help with life stages, planning, estate distribution strategies, and business planning. Have you found, Dana, that when it comes to... We're going to throw some dirt now, if you don't mind. All Is, right. Are there any of those issues that Troy talks about where you feel like somebody walks into an office and they specialize in X, that the client is more likely to get a bad experience? Well, oh boy. 
I, I mean, I definitely see have seen bad experiences with people who specialize in annuities and with people who specialize in alternative investment, kind of odd trading strategies. I mean, I had a client once put money in some kind of currency trading strategy. He was sure it was going to pay him $4,000 a month off a $40,000 investment. And of course, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it was so good. <laughs> Did I and, tell uh, you that months... story about me, Dana? <laughs> <laughs> of course, it was a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, six months later, the money oh. was gone. And, and so, you know, I, I have seen so many of those horror stories over the years. And most of the time, because the person is proposing something that is too good to be true. And people want to believe it. Like they want to believe there's this magic solution out there, this magic pill. And um, being in this profession, I know it makes all of us so mad when we see that. What, so mad. What is it though, from your standpoint, Dana, that lures people into those? Is it the, the fact that I get a free steak and a dog and pony show at my favorite restaurant? Is it that those advertisements say all the right things that make it sound like, man, I can have my cake and eat it too. I mean, I what mean, is it you think that, that drives people these? Probably the same thing that drives us to buy diet pills or, you know, <laughs> do the keto diet or the Atkins or whatever the latest, you know, we all want something that makes it easier. We, you know, we want that quick fix instead of the solid exercise and eat healthy. And, and really that's what good financial planning is about, right? It's, it's pretty boring and you know where your money goes and you invest smart and, and diversified and you don't chase the big returns. I just think it's our human nature. It's human nature that says, I want a shortcut. I want a quick fix. I want something that's going to make me money fast or be safe or be guaranteed and give me all the returns. And we fall for it over and over again. I don't know. It's hard to say why. It's. I think it's just baked into our human nature. I think it's got to be just wanting something. If hey, if I can find a shortcut, that would be, that'd be best. Roger, if somebody walks into an office, where do you see that might be the wrong relationship for people? Any horror stories? Well, I think Dana's point on we have a problem. I'm worried about the markets. I want secure income, and that's a tactical decision just like if you have a thorn in your arm and you go to the doctor, all you want is the problem solved. And a good doctor is going to go through a process to get a strategy to figure out the tactic. But the patient doesn't care about that. All they care about is the thorn in their arm. And there are plenty of people to sell you instruments to take care of the symptom without really addressing the bigger issue. And so when you're hiring an advisor, I think specialty is really important but not in product, but in process. So a good example is I'll use Dana and myself. Dana's value, it comes from her having walked the journey of people into retirement that are of a certain age and have a certain mindset. And she's walked that journey so many times that there's a lot of value in that. Just like, here's a bad example. I'm, I'm due for my colonoscopy, which has got delayed three <laughs> times because of COVID. I thought you were going to say, because you don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I finally, I'm, I'm late in going. I, I'm getting my act together and COVID comes in. But anyway, when I went and interviewed the doctor, I was, I researched it. I wanted to know things you, I don't want to talk about here, but the whole point was I wanted. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Part of the contract. But I wanted to know that this doctor had done that procedure countless times with lots of people like me. And they have a lot of collective wisdom. So I think that's where the specialty comes from. 
when it comes to products, the last thing you want is a specialist. You want someone because that's their hammer and that's the only thing they're going to hit with. You want somebody with a really thought out process. That's where I think a specialty really can come in, will help you avoid these horrible stories we all hear about. Yeah, I think, OG, Roger had a really important point there. Somebody leads with products within the first five or 10 minutes, uh, we may have a problem. Probably five or 10 hours would be prob <laughs> problematic also. I'll just say ditto. Everybody is super smart here. <laughs> And you have the um, easiest job. <laughs> this is actually pretty good so far. I got to be honest. The problem is, is that we feel sometimes a little bit ashamed about where we are, especially when you hear anecdotal stories from friends or family members or, you know, the financial entertainment channel, people call it CNBC, and they have all the different people. They just parade people one right after another of, like you said, their get-rich-quick schemes. And you just think about how boring CNBC would be or Fox Business or whatever, any of these business channels, Bloomberg, if every day they said for the first, like, 10 minutes of the show, so the smartest thing to do is, you know, save 15 or 20% of your money and take full advantage of your workplace retirement plans and be diversified and don't touch it for 50 years. And then it was just dead air, you know, like, remember when the TV channels used to go off at night? <laughs> like, it would just be static. You know, they'd play the national we anthem and just be, just be static. We that, could have that's peace. What, <laughs> yeah, that's what it would be. But that doesn't sell advertising and doesn't get people on TV going, you know me, I'm a professional and I trust my gold to Bill's gold buying, you know, or whatever the hell they're selling. So it's pretty frustrating. But I think it stems from the desire to avoid the pain of recognizing that we're a little bit behind. And a good team member, I think, would be okay with that and, and not throw you to the wind to say, because, gosh, you're 50 and you haven't done much. You know, there's not a lot of good that comes out of a conversation that shames you. You know what I mean? So, And Joe, I think one important point here is the real practitioners of financial advice sometimes do a horrible job of making it overwhelming in terms of the questionnaires we have at the beginning and the document discovery. So it doesn't make it easy to engage with us by making it so deep so early. I thought there was more than, I'm sorry. That's all I got. That's, that's all I got. Just, that was a period, not a semicolon. So thank you. Thank you. Move along, Joe. Roger, when you finish with a sentence, you got to go, ta-da. And then I know it's time to get back in again. Usually he ends it with, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think sometimes we just make it painful to come see us in terms of all the information. It's like doing an estate plan. One of the most intimidating things about doing an estate plan with an attorney is having to complete the huge questionnaire all at once. I think we can do a better job of, well, and of, I, th I think there's also Roger, we don't know why we're filling that stuff out in the first place. That's a good point. Right. I, I don't think we look at it from the client point of view enough. We know what our system is. We know how valuable this information is. So, Hey, just fill it out. But the client, in many cases, especially at the beginning of the relationship has no ideas. We'll stick with you for a second, Roger. You know, they go through a list of designations here, uh, certified financial planner, CFP, chartered financial analyst, CFA, uh, chartered certified fund specialist, CFS, Chartered Financial Consultant, CHFC, uh, Certified Investment Management Analyst, CIMA, and many other designations. How important do you think it is, Roger, that somebody that you work with has a designation? 
Well, there are plenty of very, very smart people that have demonstrated with designations that are very dumb. I think it's a bar. Even this list has some that are somewhat fluffy and some that aren't somewhat fluffy. But I think a CFP, a SEMA, a CHFC, a CFA are things that at least show a bar of people trying to sharpen the saw in their craft. So I think they are important from that point of view. But ultimately, what you're trying to find is someone that can be a thinking partner. And I think this is at least this having these types of things show that they're thinking, period. So then, Dana, assuming that you agree, does having the, the advisor designation, does it need to kind of fit the puzzle piece? Do you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, I get it. And I do agree. I have to say I've agreed with everything Roger said, too. Um, That's annoying, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get in a good argument here. It's not going to happen. You know, and I can say this because Roger and I both have the RMA designation, a retirement management advisor designation. That's somewhat of a specialty designation on decumulation that I do think people pursue designations that reflect their interest. But you can't take that as a given. I have seen advisors that collect designations but don't actually practice in that area and they have very little experience in the area of their designation. And so, you know, you can't just say, oh, they have this designation and that means they're competent. I think you have to ask how many people do they work with like me? And, and this came up earlier. You know, do they have experience? How many colonoscopies have they done? Right? <laughs> how um, many colonoscopies have you done, Dana, <laughs> in your financial planning career? Yes, in my financial planning career, hundreds, probably thousands at this point of uh, colonoscopies into the retirement income distribution plan <laughs> where things are making an exit. So, oh, boy. <laughs> it's important, but it's not an absolute sign that this person is going to be competent and have experience working with people like you. So you have to dig a little farther than that. So it sounds like, oh, gee, not just the designation, going behind the designation is really important. Like, what does the designation actually mean? Well, I think that the vast majority of these things are jokes as it relates to their usefulness. So here's a little bit of an argument, Dana, you were asking for one. Um, <laughs> I think we're all CFPs. I know Roger anyway. I think you did the other cool one. What's that one? The the, the one out in... Uh, was that Penn State or University of Pennsylvania? Or oh, something? yeah. Certified Investment Management Analyst. Yeah. Whatever. Anyways, um, <laughs> <laughs> my point is anybody who wants to can, I mean, virtually anybody who wants to, can get just about any designation they want. So using that as the threshold be all and end all is rather foolish because you have to have some ongoing continuing study. And I don't even want to say continuing education because that's a joke. I mean, the CFP requires 30 hours of CE credit every two years, and it's garbage. I mean, we can accumulate it, you know, listening to a slide presentation on Zoom or something. It's it's not really education. You're not educating yourself. And people who want to get better will do that, despite the fact that there is some requirement to do, you know, a certain amount or whatever. And I would also go on the other side of that. I know plenty of advisors who have not completed a CFP program or a CFA program. And that doesn't make them terrible either. We're going to talk a little bit, I'm sure, about compensation models here in a little bit. And um, there's not a wrong way to do it. I think that as long as you can demonstrate competency, and one way to do that is by making sure that you've got 
a rather focused operation on people that you're trying to serve. There's nothing wrong with being a family practitioner, but you're not going to go to a family practitioner if you're trying to get a lung transplant. It's just not going to happen. So like, uh, you know, Dana and Roger talked about today, you know, they focus on a certain area, which is fantastic. That I think is worth more than the fact that they are CFPs. So anyway, my two cents on the matter. Totally agree with that. And I think that's where the specialization comes in of ultimately a client is coming in because they have some issues or that they're trying to solve or something they're trying to work for. And they just want to find someone that knows how to get them there. That's really it. And it doesn't matter what designations you have. They want to find someone that they have confidence can help them get what they want. So I think that's well said. Period. Well, <laughs> Ta-da. Let's, let's he even di- gave himself a compliment at the end. He goes, that was well said. It's like, wow, we couldn't even, we couldn't even get a compliment in there. That was well said, Mr. OG. <laughs> Raj is like, I'm rocking on this one. I know. Uh, that was well said, guys. Yeah. Write that one down. Put, the, put a quote around that one. Tweet that, that one needs one to be way. on the Instagram advertising for the show. You just hear the mic drop. Let's have that discussion, OG, that you were talking about, which is the compensation discussion. Troy goes over fee-only versus fee-based, talks about yep. commission-based, where people get commissions. A lot of time, that is uh, large warehouses uh, selling, sometimes it says proprietary mutual funds, also fee-only advisors that uh, only charge a fee. And then third is, uh, well, they've got, I guess those are the two, fee-only versus fee-based uh, there is no commission only on here, uh, but let's dive into these. First of all, I want to ask about this uh, conversation, fee only versus fee based, because this is the number one conversation since I moved from being a financial planner over to just financial media that I see all the time. Dana, do people make too much of this or is that the thing that we should be focused on? I don't know. That's so hard because I know some great fee based financial planners. And, you know, fee-based just means they they often work with a broker dealer where they can charge a percentage of assets for accounts they manage, but they can also collect commissions, for example, for the sale of insurance products or certain annuity products. And, you know, annuities placed as part of a holistic financial plan can be a great, a great thing when they're done as part of a process. Like Roger said, there's a thorough process that says, here's the right product mix. So, I'm fee only, so I can certainly be biased toward that. Where I see the problem is that too many advisors who sell some type of product on a commission basis aren't using a process. And so their advice is often based on what pays them the most. Yet, I don't want to discount those who do use a great process, right? They use a yeah. thorough financial plan and then they they place their products like, like you know, we were talking about going to the doctor and having that thorough exam. I mean, so you can't just like the, the designations, right? You can't just automatically assume because someone charges a certain way that that means that they're not competent or aren't a great planner. So it sounds like you're saying that it is overblown. We ask too many questions about how we're paid. And don't get me wrong, we should ask questions about that. But but I think you're saying we don't ask enough questions about how that process works and affects me because that drives everything. Yeah. The biggest thing I see is most people who aren't using a thorough process will offer a free financial plan. And oftentimes it's very basic. It doesn't go into the details that someone might really need 
to be able to help with their cash flow planning or their budgeting or their taxes, but it's it's free. And so and then as part of that free financial plan, these products are recommended and that's how the, the person gets paid. You know, I'd much rather see someone pay for a very thorough planning process. And, you know, I just I just think we've got it backwards in what we're paying for. Yeah, it's amazing how I hear the word free now and then my eye immediately rolls. I'm like, here comes big expensive insurance recommendations. Yep, yep. Yeah. Roger? I agree 100% with Dana on you just want to find a good person to help you solve your problem. And a lot of this discussion, I think, on the fee stuff is brought upon ourselves as an industry because of all the abuses that have happened in Let's face it. The basic financial advisor training is. But is it? But is it all abuses? Not to stop you, Roger. But no, is it? No, go ahead. But is it all abuses, or is it the fact that journalists don't know what to write about, and talking about financial advisor fees is pretty easy? It is, and it's not just about abuses, Joe. I think it is also about just a lack of professionalism in how our advisor pool is trained in the first place. Because advisors, I went to the training program, I recall it at the time, the largest private bank in the world, and it was 100% sales presentation and product knowledge. Because the majority of financial advisors that work at major firms, they are a distribution arm for the firm. Doesn't mean there aren't great advisors there that have really robust processes that are actually practicing a craft. There are, but that's not the structure that they work in. And so we're not trained. We are now through, you know, CFP certificate programs through colleges. We're seeing the new breed of advisors are coming up much less as salespeople than the older versions. But I think that's the confusion that we get the consumer doesn't know. So if you're a reporter and you're looking at fees and you believe in Vanguard and it's like, yeah, no fees and less fees are always better and they're not going to help you anyway. You can do this yourself. It's easy pickings for a reason. I had a question and I, I just lost it. I was, I was so into that, Roger, that I just completely well, paused and I thought I should have question. said period. I, so. I have a question. I mean, what other industry focuses so much on how people are compensated? I, I can't think of another industry that places, I mean, imagine if cars were that way or clothing or, you know, so many other services that we consume. It, it just seems odd to me. I don't think we pay enough attention to how realtors get paid. No, yeah, there's some says, says the guy that's selling the house right now. I, <laughs> I just, I don't think we do. I know a lot of great realtors, but I don't think we pay enough attention to that. But man, I see this hyper focus with how advisors get paid. But when it comes to questions, this is the question I wanted to ask. Dana, when it comes to questions, what questions are people not asking you when they're going to hire an advisor that maybe they should be asking? What question do you wish more people would ask you? I wish more people would ask, what is the process that you use? I mean, we, we describe that when we go through and, and tell people what we do and how we do it. But people will download a questionnaire off the internet, you know, should ask your advisor this or that. I've written some of my own. I tell people, ask, ask someone to explain a concept to you. Look up the concept first so you understand it, but ask someone to explain what an index fund is or tell them your thoughts on reverse mortgages or just ask their thoughts on annuities. Listen to how they answer. I love that because to, to some degree, they're going to be your teacher for the next, you know, forever. Yeah. Yeah. Are they objective? Are they biased? Can you understand them? 
Are they speaking over your head? And does it sound like it's intentional? I mean, I've certainly seen advisors that go off using a bunch of technical jargon, trying to impress the person and not actually educating them. So focusing on those basics, like we would with almost anyone we meet that we would choose to have a long-term relationship with, you know, do we like them? Do we understand them? Can we learn from them? You know, do they relate to me? Do they communicate well? They're not talking down to me. Those are the things you really want to look for. OG questions you wish people would ask you more? Wherefore thou unto pertaining? Um, <laughs> you wish they'd speak in old English more? Yes, exactly. You don't get With the like that. twirly letters, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I, I like the process piece. I think that people should ask more about kind of like where they fit in the hierarchy of the firm's business. If you're a client and you have $500,000 and that's the lowest person that they work with, you should know that. And the other way around too, just like we've hit on a couple of times already, the specialization or working with people like me, I think almost above and beyond anything else matters quite a bit. I mean, you obviously have to know, like, and trust the person, but you wouldn't be likely at that spot if you hadn't done some at least base level research anyway. I mean, we don't really get a lot of people that just walk in the office. I can actually recall it happening one time when I had an office. And and <laughs> so, you know, and it was like in 2001, you know, when, when when there wasn't even that much internet. So you've you've gotten to the point where if you're a consumer, you've done some due diligence already up to that point. So they've passed the first litmus test. I like the idea of having them teach you something. I like the idea of of uh, making sure that you fit in their in their business model, but more specifically, trying to figure out like where you are. And it's not fair to say like, so am I going to be your richest client or something like that? But more like, there are the vast majority of people. Do you have a system? And the way that I can tell you have a system is if you have a whole bunch of people like me, and if you're working with a whole bunch of people like me, you probably have developed a system already at this point. I don't get that question very often, and I think it would be a little bit more helpful for people if they did ask it. Roger? Ditto for everybody. <laughs> um, what I would add to it from my perspective is what I have seen anyways, traditionally when you're meeting with an advisor the first time, it's very common for the advisor to be asking lots of questions, which is understandable, right? They want to get to know you, but I would suggest that as you tease out their process and you tease out where you're at in their book and everything else in the first meeting, rather than disclosing a ton, I would rather have it 80% the advisor's talking, 20% you're talking. So you can really let them explain themselves because ultimately you're deciding whether you like them and all the things that everybody said. But a lot of times the advisor switches that around just like a, you know, just as a car salesman does, they try to get you talking, which is great. You want to share a lot, but really you're, you're interviewing them. Yeah. But don't they need to know what you're worried about first? I mean, I feel like I've gone into too many meetings where the salesman just won't shut up and they have no idea what the hell I'm really there for. Well, and walk it, out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and to, I think, to, I think Dana said this earlier, there's nothing happening. There's no decisions to be made in the first meeting, maybe in the second meeting. There's no time clock going. You're trying to find a, 
a person you're going to walk life with. So there's no big decision to be made. You're just trying to discover a little bit about them. Biggest takeaway for people listening to this today, Dana, as we wrap it up. You know, interview people. It's hard. And that was crossing my mind is another reason. I think sometimes people make a hasty decision. They go with the first person they talk to because even if you do interviews as part of your work, it's, I mean, do any of us love interviewing people? Probably not, but do the work. You will learn so much by going out and interviewing three to four different types of advisors. I, I think that in itself would be something I would, I would take away from this. Roger, another takeaway. I'm going with Dana's. <laughs> I said another one, <laughs> not ditto. Um, well, I think a big takeaway is realize that every advisor is going to do it differently. This is not a standardized practice. This industry is not standardized. There is an official CFP process, but every advisor is going to have their own process. And you're going to find lots of different solutions. The key is you want to find someone that has a process and a way of thinking that resonates with you. OG? I think that there's too much uh, emphasis on being in a position to warrant an advisor, you know, you have to have so much money, you have to be close to retirement, you have to have this life event or something like that. And while all of us have different areas that we focus on and specialize in, there's also an advisor out there that's perfect for you. There's ways to search for that. And there's ways to interview people like Dana said, and get a feel for whether or not they are your people. You know, you want to have some different types of thoughts for sure. You don't want to kind of this echo chamber, but by the same token, I think that people come at it a little too late sometimes and say, well, you know, I didn't think I had enough money because I was dealing with this other stuff. Well, there's people out there that help you with that. So wherever you are, you can get professional advice uh, wherever you are in life right now. So don't wait if you don't want to. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you'll know very quickly that this is always one of my favorite parts of the show where you and I get to learn about a new fintech company together. We always go out in search of new ideas and things that uh, we want to shine a light on. Today's founder, man, this is just an exciting story. I'm sure many of you have heard of Kiva, which is a company that helps entrepreneurs around the world. And a company here in the United States that doesn't do the same thing, but is often compared to Kiva is a company called Solo Funds. And Solo Funds is fighting this battle of predatory lending practices against people that really just need short-term money to kind of keep the wheels on. And so it is a matching marketplace for people borrowing. You can help somebody out. You don't have to charge any interest. You can charge little interest. People that need money can give what they call a lender tip. It's all at this place, solo funds. And even though they do something different, it sure feels a lot like uh, the U.S. version of Kiva. We are super happy today because one of the founders, Travis Holloway, is going to join us and talk about solo funds. So let's say hi to Travis Holloway. And on my dad's shortwave radio, it's my new friend, Travis Holloway. How are you, man? I'm doing great, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. Well, and I know it's tough to get you. You and I were talking briefly before I hit record here, and uh, you've got a very busy day today, which must be great for a guy in fintech. 
yeah, uh, that's absolutely a good sign. Um, I'm very happy to be busy during these crazy times where a lot of people have, have been, you know, significantly restricted from performing lending activities, but we're super excited. Um, the traction has been awesome and, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of traction from investors as well. Yeah, I want to talk about exactly what you guys do here in a second, but I'd like to start off with the origin story around solo funds, and then we'll we'll talk about how it works. But for most of the founders I've talked to over the years, Travis, it's one of two things. It's either you saw a break in the market, maybe some people that weren't being served, or on the other side, you had a personal issue and you were just trying to solve it and there was nobody solving it. Which one of those was it for you? It was a little bit of both. Fortunately for me, I was one of the more successful people in my family at a relatively young age. But because of that, you know, I built my career in finance and I was the guy wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase every day. And my friends and family just assumed whenever I need money, I'll go ask Travis. And I ultimately wanted to find a way to stop funding all of these personal loans <laughs> to friends and family. Um, so I started to look for places that I could send them to. Uh, to get access to, you know, that type of small dollar capital, you know, $50 for gas, $100 for a utility bill, you know, $200 because your car just broke down. And unfortunately, I just couldn't find it. You know, you can't go into your local bank and get a loan for, you know, $300 because you're short on rent. And if you don't borrow from friends and family, unfortunately, you're subject to predatory lenders like payday lenders who are going to charge you 400% interest rates. So I had that personal pain point of, I was the go-to person in my family for money, um, but I also saw the significant gap in the industry where, you know, traditional banks were not solving the needs and only predatory lenders were. I've seen studies shown that show that people that are unbanked aren't unbanked because they're stupid and they don't know and they don't know how banks work. They're unbanked, Travis, because and they kind of run to payday lenders because banks also treat them pretty poorly. Would you say that's true? That's absolutely true. Banks have created a perception of constantly declining people for the services that they really need. And when you look at inner city communities, which is like, you know, kind of the communities in which I've grown up and have existed in. And then when you look at rural communities, you know, a lot of people feel that those are very different places, but they're actually extremely similar. The only difference is really population size. Uh, inner cities are food deserts. They're also financial deserts where, you know, traditional banks aren't really servicing those communities in the first place. They're subject to going to the check cashing institution on the corner or the payday lender um, when they need a loan. Uh, it's very much the same for rural communities as well, where they don't have traditional large, the, the, maybe the top four banks that uh, all of us have all heard of before. You know, they're also using check cashing institutions and payday lenders as well. Um, so with that said, one, there's a, a sheer problem of banks not existing in the neighborhoods for the underbanked. And then when they do actually exist there, um, they're not servicing them in the way that they need to be serviced because it's a very different experience or there's very different needs for someone who's living, you know, in Brooklyn and parts of Brooklyn, New York versus someone who's living in Greenwich, Connecticut. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm wondering how you took this idea of let's get my let's get let's stop loaning money to my relatives, which I've been there before too. Yeah. I've actually been on both sides of that, by the way. I was the guy asking for money and I've been the guy on the other side. So I know both pain points there. But when did that go from how did that go from uh, an idea to a fully fledged company? Yeah. So my background was in finance and I realized that you know my average client was making two hundred and fifty to $500,000 a year. And what I realized is that no one was servicing people like my father who might've made $80,000, $90,000, was living in Cleveland, Ohio, worked at General Motors for like 37 years, but no advisor from you know Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or 
Deutsche Bank, they weren't going to call to manage my dad's money because he's deemed as like not having enough assets to manage and not enough income for it to make it worth their while. You know, people who fall into certain income ranges, I realize are looking for places to allocate their capital to earn returns, but don't know how. No one's showing them how. A lot of them are also very, you know, what I would call disengaged with traditional capital markets like the stock market, but want to earn returns. And on the flip side, you have these borrowers who are asking me for money right now. I'm seeing that there's no viable solution. And I said, well, what if we could unlock capital from, you know, the everyday average American, you know, the person who's a welder or the person who's an electrician who actually does well, but probably doesn't get the attention from, you know, those traditional investment banks or financial planners. What if we could unlock their capital and pair it with people who need access to small dollar loans? And if we did that, we could solve two things. We could provide significant returns to the lender side of the market, but we could also solve short-term cash needs more affordably than ever. And I saw a crazy stat. It was like $184 billion is lent amongst you know, friends and family every year. I saw you know, a chat room on Reddit where I was seeing that borrowers were coming into a chat room and saying, hey, I need to borrow $100 because my car broke down. I'll give you back $150 in three weeks. And trust me, bro, I'm a real person. Here's my Venmo. Here's my cash app. Here's my Facebook. And I couldn't believe that people were actually funding these loans in chat rooms with no real validation of who they're actually lending money to, but it was working. And I said, well, if something like that could work, what if we put real structure around it, um, put real terms, like actually gave real returns to the lenders? Um, I think that'll go really far. And that's what I decided to do. And fortunately, it's been working extremely well. Why would you want to make that more secure? That sounds secure to me. Some dude on Reddit needs cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I, I could not believe it. I was like, wow, people are lending money to strangers in a chat room and The craziest thing to me is that people were paying it back. Um, And I said, this is insane. And I think we need to make it easier. I think we need to make it more secure and more convenient. And we decided to deliver that same type of experience um, in the form of a mobile application where anyone could lend to anyone else in the country earn a return from that, but also disintermediate predatory lending in the process. Well, let's dive in then, Travis. So uh, walk me through it from top to bottom. How does it work? I download the app. Yes. So you download the app. Let's just say that you're a lender because you're on the other side of that equation that we talked about earlier. You're no longer asking for money. Now you're lending it. You come in as a lender. You sign up using either like your Facebook account or your Google account. And then you can see the marketplace and you can see kind of what's going on in the market. You can see that people are asking for, you know, $100 for rent. You know, they might be asking for $200 for medicine. Um, The top four reasons why people need to borrow money are for just traditional bills, uh, medical expenses, groceries, um, and lastly, like transportation related issues. You know, let's say that you saw someone and you said, hey, I really want to help this person. At that time, you'll be asked to complete your sign up and we collect everything to satisfy anti-money laundering and know your customer requirements. From that point, you'll connect a debit card because we actually send money using debit rails versus ACH, which is in real time. Very important for our borrowers who need money as quickly as possible to not have to wait two to three business days just to get the money that they need in an emergency situation. I've never um, understood, by the way, not to cut you off, but I've never understood why ACH still takes three days. I just it's, it, it, <laughs> it took three days in the 1990s when I was a financial planner, and it still takes three days now. That's just horrifying. It's insane. It's insane. There's it's not been enough innovation and evolution 
there over time. And it was a major pain point because we did launch using ACH originally. And I just realized that, you know, borrowers need this money faster. And can we be faster? And how can we do that? And debit was the way. So that lender connects their debit card. Um, but the way that this process works is they connect their bank account or their debit card from JP Morgan Chase. Um, and when they decide to fund that borrower's loan request, they're funding it because one, maybe they like that this person needs money for something that's really important, medicine. They're seeing that they're going to lend out $100, but they're actually going to make back a $10 return or 10%. And then they're seeing that um, this person has a good credit score. Um, and essentially what we created at Solo is a one-time per transaction credit score, which is looking at that borrower's ability to repay a short-term loan on a specified date and time. Um, we quite frankly believe that the FICO score is broken and not applicable to the underbanked millennial demographic and you know Gen Z and future generations to come. So with that said, we're looking at things like cash flow, how frequently people get paid, when do major bills come out, what are your overall spending habits, and combining that with a slew of other data points to basically say, you know, Joe has a very high likelihood of repaying this loan on the 15th of the month. So the lender says, hey, I like this return, I'm funding that loan, there's a debit from his bank account credit immediately to the borrower's bank account. And on the agreed upon repayment date, the 15th of the month, there's an automatic debit from the borrower's account and credit back to you, Joe, as the lender. So that's how it works. And that 10% you're talking about when I was looking at solo funds, my understanding is, I mean, that's a straight 10%. That's not 10% uh, APY. That's 10%, 10%, 10%. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is a significant return. The great thing about that is, is that we're not going out and, and, and we're not setting the price for the borrower. That borrower can set that 10%. That borrower can also set 0%. And what we see is that lenders are still funding loans for people who are not offering a return. And that's great because what it shows is that on a GoFundMe, especially in a post-COVID environment, everyone is trying to figure out how can I have a bigger impact? How can I help people? How can I have you know, a positive social impact in my community? Who are the people who need help? I wish I knew how to find them. And you see people give money away every day on GoFundMe. And this is the same type of person, you know, profile of someone who may lend money on Solo, not asking for a return. But the great thing about Solo is, is that you actually get a return on your principal. Yeah, you didn't make any return on that transaction because you decided to lend or fund a loan with no tip. But you actually had that positive social impact. And what our data shows is that borrowers are not looking for handouts. They're looking for opportunities. They're looking for a helping hand during you know, very difficult times, especially in this post-COVID environment that we're in. But they're happy to pay you back with a return because they're extremely happy that they have a resource now that's not charging them 400% interest rates. And they also have a resource that they can depend on um, again in the future. And it's also something that's very unique when a stranger funds your loan that you've never seen before, because yeah. again, these aren't people that you already know. So it takes away that friction of lending and borrowing amongst friends and family. Right. Um, when you walk into a bank or you walk into other institutions and they've never believed in you before. Um, and then you go to this, this platform solo and you post a loan request. And then somebody named Joe that you have no idea who he is funds your loan. It's something very unique about that. And what we've seen with our return and the, the overall delinquency and default rates is that they remain to be really, really low because there's a, a strong personal connection there with this person picked me out of this huge marketplace of other people. I feel really, really driven to pay this back because this person didn't have to choose me. But like anything, there are defaults. I mean, there is a risk that they might not repay. Absolutely. And what we're most excited about 
is that we have a default rate that's three times better than industry average. Um, And with that said, we actually now have the ability for lenders to insure um, or protect, actually, rather, um, certain loans. And what that means is that they can actually opt into what we call solo lender protection and actually protect their loan against the inherent default risk that exists in the platform. That's been performing extremely well for us, and lenders are extremely excited about what that's done for their overall returns. Three times better than industry average. Are you, are you talking by industry? Are you talking about payday lenders? Are you talking about exactly. loans in general? You pay, the payday uh, loan people? Yeah, the payday lending industry, yeah. which is really the industry we're looking to yeah. intermediate. I have noticed in lots of places as I was doing my homework for today, Travis, that and a lot of our our listeners have heard of Kiva. That you guys you guys get compared to Kiva a lot. Would you say that's a fair comparison? So we used to get compared to Kiva a lot, and then we decided that we were going to partner with Kiva just to show the difference. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, We actually just announced our Kiva partnership last month um, in June, which we're extremely excited about. Kiva came to us and said, hey, like we've been hearing about this company. You know, I said, obviously, we've been hearing about you for the last 15 years, Kiva. We might might know who you are. (laughs) Exactly. And everyone tries to say we're just like you. And you know, as we were having a conversation on the phone, what we realized is that, you know, we're not a whole lot alike, but there actually is a, a very unique way in which we could partner to really continue to put push our impact forward. And the main differentiators is that, you know, Kiva is a global brand, a global company, but they're focused on small business loans for individuals. And that might be someone who owns a food truck, or maybe they have a t-shirt business that they sell on Etsy, but they're funding loans for business purposes. All solo loans are for personal use. Um, so with that said, you know, Kiva loans typically range between one to you know five to ten thousand dollars. Solo loans range between fifty and five hundred dollars. So Kiva was getting a lot of requests, especially again in this post-COVID environment where individual uh, individuals were coming to Kiva and saying, Hey, you know, I don't need a business loan, but I need a personal loan because times are really hard. And unfortunately, they just can't solve those needs. So by partnering with Solo, they can actually direct those individuals looking for personal loans to us, as well as open up their lender demographic to our platform as well. And then in return, Solo does have individuals who are on our platform who are taking small individual loans because they might have put the last bit of their capital into their small business to pay employees. But going forward, we can actually refer that same individual to Kiva to where they can get that true business loan. So it's really a relationship that works extremely well on both sides. Yeah. More synergistic than the same. Exactly. Exactly. My next question actually, and you referenced COVID, how has COVID changed things on your marketplace? Have you noticed a difference? Yeah. um, I mean, we're doing more loan volume than ever before. Our delinquency is actually going down. Oh, Um, so that's the very unique thing about our platform. And when you look at the way that we built it, if I, if I took a loan on, you know, another platform, you know, for maybe $5,000 a year ago, maybe I'm on a 24 month or 36 month repayment plan, borrowers who are really capital depleted or operating out of a sense of scarcity, when that next payment for that loan comes up, they're making hard decisions between, do I pay $100 on this loan or do I use that $100 for groceries? But on solo, these borrowers actually have access to that capital again, again. So when they pay that loan back, a few things happen. One, this is a resource that they can go to have a credit limit that becomes extended or increased after that repayment as well. So there's more incentive to pay back a loan on this platform because, you know, good things happen by doing so. You don't feel like you're losing money 
by making a payment. That's been really exciting. And, you know, overall, the market has shifted so dramatically from a lending perspective that the capital markets have constricted so much to where they're not deploying capital to lenders to secure their balance sheet. So you're seeing a lot of constriction in the lending market to where lenders aren't even, you know, they're not even funding loans right now. Or they've increased the standards so much that it makes it very difficult for someone to qualify for capital. Um, We've actually, because we're not dependent on institutional capital, been able to continue to offer more loans than ever before. This is super exciting. That is exciting. Now, uh, do you guys have a markup on the loan? I mean, you've got, so I've got a borrower, I have a lender. Those are both people on the platform. The borrower offers a tip, which is the interest then that the person would make. So then the person gets the tip. I guess, I guess my, my very direct question, Travis, is how do you guys make money? Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty important too, right? (laughs) Um, So we make money a few ways. We have an optional donation, which is 100% optional that the borrower will offer to pay because we're presenting this platform um, for loans that are cheaper and faster than they can get anywhere else. But we also make money um, from the lenders. And, you know, if you want to protect your loan, there's a cost that's associated with that. So a lender to protect their loan and hedge against default will pay a fee for that particular service. Um, And there's also ancillary fees that are associated, such as recovery fees um, in the collections process, as well as late fees um, if a borrower does become delinquent. Um, But those are the ways in which we currently get paid. Um, But for us, the majority of um, the ways that we get paid actually come from working with the lender. Uh, What we didn't want to do was fee the borrower to death. And for Solo, we were kind of tasked with, well, how do we not become predatory like everyone else? And for us, we said, you know, let's create more innovation. Let's create more creative ways to give lenders more information and let's better protect them. And let's figure out ways that we can actually make money on both sides of the market without putting all of the burden on the, on the borrower, which is what everyone else does. Everyone else says, Hey, the borrower should work, should bear the burden for all of the inefficiencies and in our underwriting, et cetera. Um, but we don't believe in that. And we figured out creative ways around that. That was why I was super excited to talk to you, Travis, to learn more and you guys have gotten just so much press lately, and obviously it's it's well-deserved. It's solofunds.com for people that want more. If you're walking the dog, we'll have a link in the show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. Travis, thanks so much in your, in your busy, busy day, taking a few minutes and talking about solo funds with us. I really appreciate it. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate the opportunity. Hey there, trivia fans. It's Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Did you know that on this date in history, a place called Disneyland, which you'll never believe is in Anaheim, California, it first opened its doors. And would you also believe that while one of our hosts, who shall remain nameless, yaps on and on and on and on about the place, that yours truly has never been to Disneyland. Ever! Something about the idea of that small world area I've heard about reminds me too much of this place, so I've stayed clear. But now I realize it's time for old Doug to take a much-deserved vacay. Which brings us to today's trivia question. Running Disneyland is no small feat. In fact, it's a lot more expensive than you'd probably guess. So how much does it cost to run Disneyland for one day? Una dia. I'll be back with your trivia answer before you can go splashing down a mountain. In fact, a mountain that's about to be renamed 
at Disneyland and at Disney World. But for those of you who it's are going to be new, renamed, or they're just redoing it. Uh, it is being renamed and rethemed because Briar Bear can't be in it anymore, huh? There will be no Briar Bear in. Uh, no, you have to say it the right way. Briar Bear. That's how they say it. <laughs> is that how they say? It? That's that's how they say it. Yeah. I may have gone down Splash Mountain forty-seven times in a row. With it my sounds kids. like you've gone down too many times. I've thought that Briar Bear d- during our shows. I thought there's a guy that went down Splash Mountain maybe two or three too many times. But uh, for those of you new to this show, we have a trivia contest going between our three contributors, Len, Paula, and OG. The score now, and you're, if you're new to the show, you're like, who's Len, who's Paula? They'll be back next week. But we've got Len has nine, OG has nine, and Paula has seven. So the race is tightening. Normally, we have men play for men, women play for women. We're not going to do that today. We're going to mix it up. So... You, Dana, today are playing on behalf of Len Penzo, and uh, that means, Roger, you're playing on behalf of Paula Pant today. I'm sorry, Paula. (laughs) (laughs) But there is good news for you, Roger. What that means is that you get to decide first whether you want to guess first in the middle or last. Which one of those positions would you like? I got to go last. Of course. And then, uh, Dana, would you like to go in the middle or first? I'll go in the middle. Which means, OG, you're kicking it off today. So how much money does it take to operate Disneyland one day? We're talking about Disneyland, the one in California. The one in California, correct. Okay. So um, let's see. There's Mickey, Minnie, (laughs) Daisy, Donald. Everybody's downloading this going, why is this six hours long? There's at least one or two people to take tickets. I have absolutely no idea. How much does it cost to run it a day? And and we're talking like all in costs, like prorated tax bill to the city of Anaheim. Are we talking, you know, workers' comp insurance for employees, like the all in day? Is that is that what we're looking at? I believe they take the cost of running Disneyland, which would include taxation, and just divided it by three hundred and sixty five to come up with this little piece of trivia. Just a quick follow-up then. So on leap year, is this a oh, leap year <laughs> year or non-leap year? I thought, I know I my thought Paula Payne's not here today. Be. Are you, are you uh, working overtime because Paula's not here? So a million a day would make it cost $365 million a year. That doesn't seem like a lot. $10 million a day would be $3.6 billion a year, which seems like a lot. So I'm going to say that um, that it's 2.97 million a day. 2.97 million. So Dana, what are you going to do with that number? Well, so I'm going to come at it a little differently. I think it's about 50,000 people a day that go to Disney and it's about $100 a ticket. So, you know, they're bringing in at least 5 million a day from sales. Plus every, you know, that's just tickets. Like I think all their money's probably really made on all the other stuff. So... So I'm going to guess they make their money on the other stuff, and I'm going to call it five million a day. Five million. So they're so they're working at break even and selling the, uh, giving you the experience for quote free, and then uh, selling you on buying stuff at the end of every ride. All the food, uh, merchandise, <laughs> everything else. That's that's my guess. Yeah, R- Roger, you've got uh, well, pretty close to three million and five million there. Wow, they thought it 
through it much more than I have just sitting here listening. I'm going to have to say it's about $7 million a day. I'm going big. <laughs> so I like Dana has the thought process. OG had way too much thought process. Roger just says, I'm going big. He also doesn't know how to play this game and that the right answer would have been $5 million and $1. <laughs> so he captures all of the upside. This is the price. I can be over, right? You can be over. Okay. You can, can be, be over. over. Well, he could have gone $4.9 or $2.98 Mr. OG. No, no, absolutely. But but if he wanted all of it, now now he just kind of gave Dana some wiggle room in there. If I recall, last time I played this game, I was playing for OG, and I really just messed it up for him. So <laughs> I'm sorry, OG. <laughs> we're about to see if you messed it up for Paula. But of course, we're not going to let you know who won right away. We will let you know in just a minute. What if you two could be balding and own your own podcast production company? Think that would be too good to be true? Well, strap on the wow helmet, kids, because we're about to introduce you to Stacking Benjamins in the Can. Now, you two can create a moderately successful internet radio show from the comfort and privacy of your own mom's basement. That's right. Stacking, Stacking Benjamins, Benjamins in the, the can, can is the do-it-yourself kit that's creating tons of internet fun. What's included? Well, feast your eyes on this, kids. Open up your Stacking, Stacking Benjamins, Benjamins in the can, can, and you'll see 14 ways to talk about your latest trip to Bavaria. 18 of the worst bad dad jokes you ever heard. Your own barely relevant holiday calendar. A sealed container brimming with the smells of stale basement air and day-old pizza. Plus, one script chock full of Segway ideas. And because there was still a little room, we also shoved in your very own Steak Brother story. All in the can. That's not all. Think we can't do better? Oh, yes, we can. We've also thrown in the can five gratuitous references to OG's after-school activity, three boring tales about how cold it is in Detroit, and if you call in now, tons of free Sizzler coupons. How do you get it? You know that's not the question to ask. Oh, go ahead, ask us. How do I get it in the can? Here's the secret to stacking Benjamins in the can. Just head to your mom's basement, buy a microphone, and we'll take care of the rest. Stacking, stacking Benjamins, Benjamins in, in the, the can, can couldn't be easier. Still not sold? What if I told you stacking Benjamins in the can is, is gluten-free? Gluten That's right. Healthy, barely funny, and all stuffed into this refillable souvenir container. Call for yours today. Operators are standing by. No animals were harmed in the making of this recording. Oh, gee, you kicked it off. Disneyland, uh, one day of operation, 2.97 million. Feeling pretty confident now that all the votes are in? No, no. I, I, Dana had a better approach, which was to think about the, the known issue, which is how many people pass through. Of course, I didn't have any idea how many people pass through, so... Well, and and Dana, is it because you're in Arizona and you go to Disneyland a lot that you know that so many people going to Disneyland a day? I have a client who is a Disneyland fanatic. 
they go multiple times a year and take the whole family. So I, I know more about it than than I probably would otherwise. <laughs> then, then you may want to. Yes. Right. And Roger, that seven million. Well, you get you know if it's ten million, big guy, you got it. I should have called my lifeline. <laughs> Lou Mangello, a good friend of mine, has a huge Disney podcast. I should have called him. That's one of my favorite podcasts. Good, good, good podcast guy. and a good guy. You're right. All right, Doug, uh, tell us what's the correct answer. Hey, stackers, it's your favorite pal, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Yeah, it's me. And would you believe that when I told Joe I was going to take some time off to go to Disneyland, all he said was, good luck getting in, buddy. Buddy? Buddy? What's that supposed to mean? He doesn't like the way I look or something? Doesn't think I, like, dress cool enough to get in the doors past the bouncers? Does he think people like me don't belong in the happiest place on earth? Well, newsflash for you, pal. Disneyland would love to have neighbor Doug. They won't Mickey Mouse around with me. Uh, No offense, new boss. I'm sure Mickey'd even offer me a job and maybe even my own show. Seeing I grew this little podcast from like zero listeners to uh, a couple more than that. Uh, Before I Go give Joe a piece of my mind. Let's get back to today's trivia. Question was, how much does it cost to run Disneyland each day? Would you believe that 18 million people visit Disneyland every year and all of that results in some seriously big costs? You thought running a podcast was expensive. How about this? While you shouldn't worry about Disney, I mean, they made like $4.5 billion in profits in 2018. Still cost them a ton of money to run that park to the tune of $3.25 million just to operate the one park, Disneyland, every day. Now it's time for me to go profit off my Disney experience. See ya! Wow. Bam. OG got it. That's almost a bullseye, actually. Good job, OG. Thinking does pay off. (laughs) (laughs) The more you know, Wild ass guess. The more you know. But Dana, this gets back to your point that they're giving it away. They're making money on the ticket and on the stuff at the end of the ride. And on the merchandise. Yep. And, And people are smiling the happiest place on earth as they go home with empty pockets. I love it. Six, six bags of money. Uh, Good times. And that means that OG goes into the lead with 10 now. Len nine and Paula with seven. Hey, that's going to do for today. Normally we do the magnify money line, but I thought that having a more thorough discussion since we had three financial planners here to talk about hiring a financial planner from the other side of the table, I thought that was well more important. So we're going to wrap it up for today, but let's find out what's going on with each of you and your communities We'll uh, have the guest of honor, Dana, go last. Uh, so, OG, what's happening with you, big guy? Roger feels a little slighted. I think you could have given him <laughs> co-guest of honor <laughs> titles I, I, for the I, day. I, I, I bow down to Dana. She's awesome. <laughs> I, I, I agree. We're getting back from the compound. That's the new name for the place up north. So we're getting back from the family compound. I announced that to my family, by the way that uh, we're going to start calling it that. And my wife said, it sounds like a place that we'd have lots of like guns in a shooting camp. And I said, oh, well, that's not the image I'm trying to no. create. But um, but I'm going to still go with it for a while. So we're coming back still from the family the compound. compound. Yes. Yeah, the family compound. All 800 square feet of it. And um, 
uh, yeah, head back to Dallas pretty soon here. Kids are, you know, I mean, we're just all doing the same thing everybody else is doing, waiting to see what the hell's going on. That's what we're doing. Just, <laughs> I don't know. My kids going to school? Are they not? We, you know, I, I don't. Who knows, dude? And our I'm other go play golf deal. And our other guest of honor, Mister Roger Whitney. Thanks for hanging out with us, man. You bet. It's fun as always, man. It it is it is fun. And by the way, did you get your board game from me? I did. What an appropriate board game to get. <laughs> I won the board game pandemic before pandemic was a thing. (laughs) That was foreshadowing. And I had it forever. And as I'm cleaning out my house as we're selling it, Roger, I'm like, oh my God, Roger doesn't have his game. It's in quarantine in a separate closet at the moment, but in 14 days, I'm going to bring it out and play it. That's good. Fantastic. Well, what's going on at the retirement answer, man? Oh man, this month we are diving into estate planning in retirement for the entire month. And uh, in the Rock Retirement Club, we got a bunch of special guests coming on. I think Wade Fowle is going to join us in the Rock Retirement Club this month. And but what I'm excited about all those things. But what I'm really excited about is August. We're going to Colorado for five weeks. Oh man, beat the heat and go mountain biking and hiking. That's fantastic. You do that every year, don't you? Yeah, this is our second year. We added a week this year. Four weeks wasn't enough. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. And uh, people can find the Retirement Answer Man podcast wherever finer podcasts are listened to. Yes. (laughs) Dana, thanks for coming back. And like we alluded to at the start of the show, saving this episode. (laughs) I don't know about that, but thank you. (laughs) What's going on at Sensible Money? Well, let's see. We've got a webinar coming up July 23rd. It's free. We'll be walking through the process of making a retirement income plan. But um, I'd like to switch places with Roger and go to Colorado for five weeks. That sounds amazing. I know. Let's just Love. regroup there and do another podcast episode. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm here in, in Arizona, my fiance owns a gym and our, our gyms got shut down again. And yeah. so it's been interesting. I mean, it's a challenge to run, depending on what kind of business you're in. I really feel for for people out there who are in industries that are, are getting shut down and, and aren't being able to reopen. I mean... I'm seeing it firsthand. So we're dealing with a lot of that too out here. That is super, super tough. We were in California when they were starting to relock things down and just, and they weren't locking it down in the area that we were in, but even you could, you could tell when you went into a family restaurant, Dana, that they're, yep. you know, how long am I going to keep uh, putting food on my own table? Yep. My heart breaks for him. It's, it's really tough. But people can find out more about your webinar if they just go to sensiblemoney.com. They can. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> absolutely. I'll get back to that. I'm I'm back on uh, meeting Roger, though, all of us in Colorado. That's going to do it for today, everyone. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, I'll tell you what we should have learned today. First, take a lesson from our roundtable discussion. Ask more questions when hiring better help and make sure the advisor you meet is a good fit can't find a good advisor maybe you need to perfect your interview skills second take a lesson from travis holloway from solo funds borrowing from banks that might not be your best option if you're just hoping to figure out how to get by and while you still have some better planning to do a payday loan also isn't a great option but the big takeaway turns out joe said good luck getting in not a diss but that Like, get this, Disneyland isn't exactly open right now in the conventional sense. 
something about a virus. I mean, is that, is that still a thing? Virus? That, like people still talking about that? Big thanks to Dana Onspach from Sensible Money for joining us on the roundtable. You can find Dana at SensibleMoney.com or we'll have a link on our show notes page at StackingBenjamins.com. Also, big thanks to Roger from The Retirement Answer Man for joining us. You can find Roger at RogerWhitney.com and you can find his podcast, The Retirement Answer Man, wherever you listen to finer podcasts. Not those other garbage ones. Good ones like this one. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahigh, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare, and it certainly wasn't well done. Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. What happens in the after show stays in the after show. And uh, I, did, did you guys see, I, I know OG you did, but uh, Dana and Roger, did you guys see that uh, thing early on in coronavirus about the woman who uh, had her Zoom call, didn't know her video was on and took it to the bathroom? <laughs> I heard about that one. Allegedly, yeah. I'm actually really glad I didn't see that. <laughs> you know, the one I saw was um, Chris Cuomo's wife was supposedly teaching her online yeah. yoga. Yeah, you saw that one. Yeah. And, and he was uh, supposedly standing naked out on the back patio, got got in the shot. Oh, so. no. <laughs> yep. That's a, that's a bad day. Well, how about this one? This comes to us from The Guardian. Uh, man offers to resign after showering during a live video meeting. Bernardo Bustillo mistakenly left his video on while attempting to multitask by showering while listening to an online meeting. A municipal counselor in Northern Spain is offered to resign after inadvertently broadcasting video of himself showering during an online. That, that's one you can't unsee. Ah, uh, no. Wow. Yeah. You know this what is my worst me? fear. <laughs> you know what hit me about that article? 
is that he was showering because he had to take his son somewhere. And then he was going to go to his practice because he's a swim coach. Swim instructor, yeah. And I'm like, dude, you could have just dumped him in the pool (laughs) after you dropped your son off. (laughs) That's like, that counts as So Roger's saying it was intentional. I think it might have been. I had a question for each of you. I mean, there have been situations, you know, where you might say the wrong thing. I've told the story here recently where I was at a basketball game and was going on and on about one of the player's shoes. And it turned out that the rep for the shoe company was sitting right in front of me as I'm ripping the shoe. He kept his mouth shut for about three quarters of the game. And then finally, finally, uh, was rather angry when he stuck the, his Fila card in my face. (laughs) Telling me that, uh, yeah, I, so did you call him and offer him to come in for a free retirement consultation? (laughs) I I should, that would have been pretty, Pretty top notch, actually. I, I should have taken his card the next day. Said, you know, I owe you something. Why don't you come be a client of mine? But there's also been times we've heard about people hitting reply all. And I don't know if you guys have any stories of a time where you might have maybe, maybe not showered on a Zoom call, but uh, maybe had something that you wished uh, you could have taken. I'm showering right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. We're all very happy about it. It is about time. I have a story, but it's not about me. Oh, I was going to say, I don't think you're going to get a lot of uh, mea culpas here, Joe. I don't think that's going to happen. No. Um, I have a buddy who was a coach in Michigan, a basketball coach for kids, you know, elementary, middle school kids. And there was a kid on his team who was very tall, very gangly and not very coordinated. And they, they nicknamed him Lambeer. So Lambeer is After Bill the basketball Lambeer. player. Yeah. Bill yeah. Lambeer was a, a, a basketball player when the Pistons were really good. And he was a big, tall guy, really tough, really, you know, ornery. So they nicknamed this kid Lambeer because he was tall and awkward. And he liked it, by the way. Anyway, so they're playing some fancy school in Dallas. And the kid's out there and the coach keeps yelling at, Lambeer, watch your zone. Lambeer, get over there throughout the game. And finally, like in the third quarter, Bill Lambeer stands up in the in the stands and says, would you stop yelling at my son? <laughs> His son was playing on the other team. <laughs> and when Bill Lambeer tells you to do something, you stop. I would stop immediately. Yeah, he's a big dude. Oh, that's great. I've actually met him, and he is gigantic. Like, I- super tall. It's embarrassing. I think he like he was standing like three steps below me. I'm not tall at all. I'm five nine, but he was still taller than me, three steps three low. Steps like like it wow. was. I was still looking up. I was like, holy! And he's not like like you said a lanky kid. He's no, yeah, he's got, he's he's a grown man. He's yeah, you know, a big he's got guy. a little got a little heft to him. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I thought that was. I, funny. I don't have any, uh, I've, I've, I, this is my worst fear is, so, so I try to do all my video calls from the office and then I don't have to worry about all this, but I do have a funny, um, funny email I sent the other day. I have a couple getting divorced, unfortunately. I was yeah. going to say, that's not funny. <laughs> that, that part's great, not funny. Great setup. Um, Isn't that setup. hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> but but I, they wrote, I, I hadn't heard from, from the husband. I had heard from the wife. And then he wrote to me and I wrote back the other day and I, and I replied all to the both. And I said, good to hear from you. Sorry to hear about the two of you. You are correct. Over the years, I've made many couples separate or divorce. And uh, <laughs> I meant to say... <laughs> 
to say I've worked with many couples who have separated or divorced. (laughs) So luckily they had a good sense of humor and he joked back about the home wrecker that I was. uh, But it it was funny. The subpoena will be coming in a week or two. That's right. right. My name's Dana. I repel people. (laughs) Awesome. I had a, uh, I was working in a financial planning office and the, the head guy in the office and the office manager were starting to date, but they were trying to keep it on the down low. They were both single, you know, it wasn't an affair or anything, but for them, they just, because they worked together and I think they hadn't told HR yet about it. They wanted to keep it, keep it quiet. And Anne sent Tony an email that said, where do you want to go to get something to eat tonight? And it's funny because she accidentally sent that to the entire office, (laughs) which, which by the way, though, Dana, you're laughing, but that wasn't a big deal because, okay, yeah, Tony and Ann are are going, are going to get something to eat. Everybody thought it was something though, when on, on a lot of email, you can retract the email. She sent a retraction with ignore that last email. And that's when the the mistake wasn't sending the email. The mistake was sending the retraction. Traction. Yeah. That made us all go, oh, this isn't just dinner. This is. Don't look at the elephant. Yes. This is dinner. Yeah. That's funny. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website. Resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.